Welcome to Disputes Digest for the week of February 28, 2022. I'm Chris Campbell. Don't forget to follow Tales of the Tribunal on LinkedIn to stay up to date with news from around the international dispute resolution field. If you haven't already, take a moment to share the show with a friend or colleague. And if you've got any feedback for the show, drop us a line at talesofthetribunal at gmail.com. And you already know the drill. Don't forget to leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. Now, before we get into it, right as we were getting ready to air last week's episode, breaking news developed that our show felt was necessary to delay our current episode and release the following week so we could review the occurrence on the ground in light and in respect of the tragedies playing out. By now, you are undoubtedly aware that the Russian state has begun a full-scale assault both on the people of Ukraine, but also on the fundamental principles of human rights and rule of law. This has led to a senseless outbreak of violence, destruction, and death, the likes of which have echoes of the last world war. We hope that it won't come to that, and we are also aware that our show is just a podcast with a limited scope and voice of what we can do. However, with what voice we do have, we will use it to condemn these affronts to justice taken at the hands of the Russian state and stand in upright and rigid solidarity with the people of Ukraine, fighting for their lives and for their future. This is not a condemnation or reproach against the Russian people, many of which are protesting from within Russian's own borders and therefore jeopardizing their own lives, but a recognition that this issue is of international and global importance. Indeed, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. There have been a number of initiatives and activities launched in order to support the Ukrainian people. We'll post links to those if you want to get involved or find some other way to help. Now let's get into the news. First, let's talk about this news out of several of the major international moot court competitions, the Vismut, the Jessup, and the Frankfurt Investment Arbitration News. Over the past week, each of these moves, like many international organizations, has received many calls to suspend the Russian teams participating in the moot in alleged solidarity with Ukraine. And each moot issued their own statements declining to suspend Russian teams. They also condemned the Russian invasion with the VIS saying, quote, stand with others in condemning the Russian invasion in Ukraine, end quote, and expressing a sentiment that echoed in the statements from all three organizations Namely, as an educational exercise that promotes peaceful dispute resolution, the moot needs to model the behaviors and approaches we advocate. As such, we will not be excluding Russian teams from the Vismut competition. Furthermore, it is critically important that these Russian teams do not suffer prejudice because of the unacceptable actions of the Russian government. In addition to these statements, Sabine Conrad of Morgan Lewis and Bacchius, one of the organizers of the Frankfurt Investment Arbitration Moot, shared on LinkedIn, it goes without saying that students participating in international law moot court cherish and value the international rule of law and international law. Finally, though many more thoughts and words have been shared, we'll conclude with words from the Jessup organizers, which said they firmly rejected, quote, the idea that our shared goal of a world of law would be served by punishing students for the decisions of their national leaders, end quote. Even with these well-reasoned and crafted statements, however, there has been some frustration with the organizers, with critics arguing that they are not taking enough action or reprisal against the Russian state. There are obviously many more thoughts and opinions on the topic, but drop me a line in the comments or in the inbox. I'd genuinely be curious to hear from you. 
Then on the other end of the spectrum from organizations not taking actions against Russian participants in their organizations, you have, as of March 2nd, 2022, multiple international organizations and agencies have announced their suspension of Russian teams and participants. While Russian and Belarusian athletes are allowed to compete in the Olympics, including the Paralympics in this case, competing athletes must cover their nation's flags on their uniforms, and the International Olympic Committee will not be holding any further events in Russia until further notice. Along those lines, both FIFA and UEFA announced in a joint statement that they suspend all Russian international and club teams from their competitions until further notice, which in particularly cast ambiguity as to whether Russia will be able to qualify for the World Cup with its qualifying matches still hanging in the balance. Formula One and World Athletics Council have also banned Russian and Belarusian athletes, with the International Tennis Federation instead banning the Russian Tennis Federation and the Belarusian Tennis Federation from ITF membership or team competition until further notice. Suffice to say, nearly every sport imaginable has had some form of sanction that is levied against Russian athletes or organizations, with most of them suspending or removing Russian competitors. It will be a closely followed issue whether this leads to any disputes or litigation from the actions of these entities, even in response to a military conflict. Then finally, on the Ukrainian war front, speaking of legal matters, the legal world has not been exempt from the raft of departures from associations with Russia. Major international law firms with Russia offices, including White and Case, Baker McKenzie, and Morgan Lewis and Bacchus, are scrambling to respond this week to an intensifying sanctions web which puts some clients off limits and threatens their entire business in Moscow. This is an especially relevant subject as New York-founded firm with more than 2,200 lawyers that worked on the sanctions VTB Bank just last year on $1.7 billion in restructuring is reassessing its work in Russian and Belarusian jurisdictions and is allegedly taking steps to exit representation in accordance with applied rules of professional responsibility. The same seems to be true for the other two mentioned firms. This comes as two other large firms, Sidley, Austin, and Venable, terminated registration to lobby in Washington, D.C. for sanctions of financial institutions VTB and Spurbank, respectively. These moves and similar ones are aimed to punish Russia and Russian organizers in line with freezing out certain financial institutions from participating in the SWIFT global financial network. It is unclear how much business the firms will lose from severing ties and whether such changes are permanent or temporary. All right, now let's switch gears for a moment and talk about something we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, and that is fast approaching. The American Bar Association's Masterclass in International Arbitration. It is a primer on all the nuts and bolts and essential topics you need to know on international arbitration, but it goes one step further than a beginner's class. These are practical segments that participants will get to practice functioning skills, like opening and closing statements, cross-examinations, and tips on how to win over the tribunal all taught by senior practitioners in the field. I'm moderating one of those panels, and let me tell you now, you don't want to miss it. And for my listeners, the ABA has extended a special price. General admission was $4.75, but for my listeners, if you use the discount in the link available in the show notes, you can register for $225. That's a 50% discount for two days of instruction and guidance from industry-leading professionals. So, whether you or someone you know could benefit from this, you wanna act now. There are still seats available, but when they're gone, they are gone, and space is limited, and you'll have to wait till next year. You won't wanna miss this. We'll include a link in the show notes, so don't miss your chance to register now. Then, let's head to the United States, 
where a federal court of appeals upheld a stay of trademark infringement proceedings pursuant to Section 9.1 of the Arbitration Act. However, it rejected the intellectual property enterprise's court's reasoning for ordering the stay in the first place. In particular, it did not view the claimants as parties to the relevant arbitration agreement, which was governed by California law, nor were they restrained by principles of equitable estoppel. Nevertheless, the majority view was that the claimants were bound by the arbitration agreements in accordance with the law of the contract in California. Although the trademark had been assigned to the claimants who were initially ignorant of the arbitration agreement, the conflict of laws principles that deal with assignment should not determine the scope of agreement and who was covered by it. This decision is particularly notable as it illustrates the difficulty of determining which conflict of law principles apply in complex cases, which also establish a clear message that although arbitration agreements are consensual, they are capable of binding non-parties in certain situations, including where the trademarks are assigned multiple times. The decision is a fascinating one, which we'll include a link to in the show notes. Then one final story for the week, and it's a quasi-update to a story we covered a few weeks ago related to arbitration in Dubai. The Dubai International Arbitration Center, DIAC, which has been named one of the top 10 centers in the world by the International Arbitration Survey, has finalized their latest rules of arbitration, which come into force 21st, March 2022. The latest set of rules were drafted with a focus on streamlining arbitration procedures and facilitating further efficiency of the proceedings. Although the new rules have yet to be published, they were approved by DIAC's board of directors in late February. Here are a few additions to watch out for in the new edition. One, consolidation of claims. Two, joinder. Three, expedited proceedings. Four, an alternative process for appointing arbitrators. And five, exceptional proceedings such as emergency arbitrator appointments and conciliation. Further, with respect to fees, legal fees are now part of the arbitration cost and could be claimed by the parties under the new rules. The new rules reflect the latest developments in the field of international arbitration, as well as the evolving needs of the business community. It is aimed at improving the efficiency of the arbitration procedures and ensuring that the users benefit from a wide range of additions. It will be interesting to see how these new rules are promoted throughout the world. All right, and just one more thing before we wrap up today. A little bit more black history. Finally, as Black History Month came to an end earlier this week and Women's History Month kicked off as well, we conclude today with a bit of epic news, again out of the U.S. Supreme Court. Last week, President Joe Biden announced his pick to replace Justice Stephen Breyer, who recently announced his retirement. So we thought it would be great to give you a little bit more information about the life and legal career of Judge Jackson. Judge Jackson was born in Washington, D.C. and has a storied career as an attorney across a number of governmental bodies and even in private practice. A graduate of Harvard Law School, where she also served as a supervising editor of the Harvard Law Review, she also clerked for Judge Patty Saris of the U.S. District Court of Massachusetts, Judge Bruce Celia of the U.S. Court of Appeals, and even the retiring Supreme Court Justice Breyer himself. Jackson spent several years in private practice before taking on a role as a special counsel to the United States Sentencing Commission and going from there to work as a federal public defender. After this decade of legal practice, on September 12, 2012, President Barack Obama nominated Jackson to serve as a judge for the United States District Court for the District of Columbia, where she served until being appointed to the D.C. Court of Appeals on March 30, 2021. Although she served in that position for only a year, she is expected to be confirmed as the newest member of the United States Supreme Court sometimes later this year. 
Broadly stated, Judge Jackson has been described as being labor-friendly and a particularly popular pick with legal liberal activists and a worthy successor to Justice Breyer's legacy. We salute you, soon to be Justice Jackson. That's it for the Speaks Digest. We're glad to be back in your news feeds and look forward to seeing you next week with more news from around the international dispute resolution and legal business world. If you have feedback or comments for the show, drop us a line at talesofthetribunal at gmail.com. Until next week, this has been the Speaks Digest. Bye. Tales of the Tribunal. None of the views shared today or in any episode of Disputes Digest is presented as legal advice nor advice of any kind. No compensation was provided to any organization or party for their inclusion on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization, legal position, or viewpoint. All interviewees or organizations included appear on an arm's length basis, and their appearance should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved.